This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher. I'm one of the hosts. And I'm very excited today to be interviewing William Alexander about his book titled 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World out in 2022 from Grand Central Publishing. Um, This book is fascinating. You've probably already gotten some sense of it from the title, um, but it essentially traces the tomato, which we may think we know a lot about um, through its history in various different places, various different types of tomatoes, um, looking at how it's grown, how it's been eaten, how it's been talked about in the press, in law, um, in multiple different countries. Um, I found this absolutely fascinating. There were loads of things in it that I personally had never come across. Um, And so I'm really excited to welcome William, you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Uh, So the book is uh, about 10 tomatoes that changed the the, the world. And uh, I I'll admit it's it's kind of a provocative title. You know, there people have said to me, well, how can a tomato change the world? Much less 10, 10, 10 times over. Um, but I would say, well, you know, for one thing, it pretty much single-handed, uh, single-handedly created a national cuisine. Um, it is the most popular vegetable in the in the world, bar bar none. Um, and also, it's the main ingredient in the most popular condiment in the world. Um, it was one of the, uh, it was the very first f- uh, food that uh, was uh, sold as a GM, GMO food. Um, and so I, I think it's had a huge uh, Im- impact on the, on, on the world and it deserved a, a closer look. Those are just a few of the things, but very persuasive already for why this is such an interesting topic. Um, And so I'd love to kind of do a bit of a highlights tour of the book in this interview. Um, Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to every interesting detail and story. I would definitely recommend that listeners um, read the book properly for that. Uh, But I'd love to start off with one of the points you've already mentioned, the idea of kind of base of a national cuisine, Um, because I certainly came into this book sort of assuming that the tomato and Italy were 
a well-established, you know, centuries and centuries old partnership and was therefore really surprised to learn that although the tomato shows up in Italy, it takes over a century to actually become a key part of the food. So could you help us understand why the tomato takes so long to become the key part of Italian cuisine that we now know it to be? Yeah, so you know, a few few theories have been uh, tossed out, and uh, the one that you you normally hear is that well, it was believed to be poisonous for hundreds of years um, because uh, it is a member of the the night, nightshade family, and the problem with that theory is that so are our peppers, so is egg eggplant and in Italy they were happily eating those those foods for hundreds of, of years before tomatoes showed up so I I dug a little deeper to, to try to find out what what really happened to it um, and so it arrives in uh, in Europe uh, from uh, Mexico the uh, Spanish con conquistadors bring it over around uh, in the 1830s we don't really know exactly when it shows up and unlike some of the other foods that come over with it um potatoes chili peppers um you know any any number of foods that we take for granted today it is just exceedingly unpopular um and it, when you think about it, though, that isn't so odd because it is very strange. It, it didn't look like anything else that was in the Italian diet. Um, in fact, uh, I was told that that some some people weren't sure what part of the plant to eat. A few people tried the leaves and said, "Oh, this is terrible. We don't want to eat 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 this." It goes from ripe to rotten on your on your windowsill in just a couple of days. So it's you know it's not good from from that point of view. Um, it has kind of a very strong smell. Even the leaves have a have a strong smell, and that's one of the things that you you read about it. Many people just say, "Oh, this is a lousy, smelly, smelly plant." Um, but it seems what really happened to it is that it arrives in during the height of the Renaissance. And we all know that the Renaissance was about, you know, the redis rediscovery of old artwork and literature. But it was also the redis dis dis rediscovery and embracing of old medical text practices. And... Um, and that included the second century doctor Galen of Pergamon, and Galen was maybe the first like celebrity doctor of his of his day. He was a doctor, the emperor's, uh, probably the first diet doctor, and he came up with this schema of how how to eat, where he classified foods as being. On, if you think of a of a graph with an X and a Y axis, on one axis, wet or wet or dry; on the other axis, uh, hot and cold. And the idea was that to uh, balance the humors in your body, you had to have the proper mix of these uh, hot versus cold or wet versus dry foods. Uh, of course. Uh, Tomatoes were not a part of that. They, they they wouldn't be known for another you know over thousand years, um, 
but um, the 16th century uh, Italians adopted this this food schema, and when the new plants arrived from the new world, they all had to be uh, assigned to a a, a place on this. Uh, chart if you if you would and tomatoes safe to say did not fare well they were they were almost falling off the chart in the cold and wet corner you know kind of like a damp basement um and so it was mainly that they were considered unhealthy to eat not not poisonous not terribly tasting but it was just reputation in galen's schema that they were bad for the humors, that uh, they were not not eaten for hundreds of, of years. How then did opinions change? Well, a couple things happened. Um, one thing is that even though Italians didn't uh, didn't eat them, they grew them like in their gardens, like next to the flowers in their window boxes. Uh, they said, this is kind of a pretty plant. And uh, tomatoes um, tend to uh, mu- mutate more than most other foods. And so over the hundreds of years, the tomato itself probably changed just from the natural mu- mutations. Um, the other thing that happened, probably more in important factor is that the renaissance got replaced by you know the age of enlightenment and scientific thinking came in and um and so gradually people started to eat to eat them first in the south because they they grew extremely well in the south italy and southern italians were desperately poor they had almost no meat in their diet and so they looked for things that they could um, they could grow um, in great volume. And any t- tomato gardener knows that you know you give it the right uh, weather climate, and, and tomatoes will grow like crazy and keep growing until the frost. So it was the southern Italians who started eating them first, and then it gradually spread north northward. That makes sense, um, particularly given, as your book later discusses, kind of where uh, some tomato-based foods, especially pizza, um, start to come in Italy. It's the same sort of progression. Um, But moving away from Italy, uh, to pick up on a few things you mentioned at the beginning, obviously we're going to get to ketchup, don't worry. But before we get to that, we have to first introduce the tomato to the United States. How does that happen? So... No one's really certain. It seems to have happened by uh, two two different routes. Um, um, it does seem that probably some slaves who, uh, brought tomato seeds from the Spanish-controlled slave trading islands of the Caribbean, um, and where they had, you know, eat eat eaten them because the Spaniards after colonizing Mexico also colonized the, 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 the Caribbean, uh, but they didn't really move north, it seems. And it's probably English settlers who, uh, who brought uh, seeds over. Um, exactly why they would do that is a uh, mystery because they actually weren't very popular in 
England at that at that time. Hmm. Interesting. And yet, um, as you show in the book, tomatoes, again, don't really take off in the United States. Um, at first, some of the same issues that you've already discussed in Italy in terms of not knowing what to do with it. Is it healthy? Is it not? It's kind of weird. Um, but that begins to change. And you obviously, there's it's not just one thing that causes this to change. Obviously, that would be far too simplistic. Um, but I'm wondering if you could talk about one of the things that changes uh, sort of perceptions of tomato consumption in the United States. And you talk about one of those things being the American Civil War. How did that benefit tomato consumption? Um, so when uh, when Americans went, went, went to war, the North had canning plants. And uh, canning had been invented in 1807. Um, it was happening on a commercial basis by like the 18... 18- 20s, although it hadn't really caught on uh, and didn't really catch on to around 1850 until um, the invention of something else that's very important to canning, which is the can opener, (laughs) was uh, (laughs) introduced decades. Yeah, it didn't come along to decades after the the tin can was invented. So... uh, uh, t- t- tomatoes were one of the first foods canned in the, in the states. Very popular food, um, probably easier to can than many other foods because they do have a naturally um, acidic quality, um, and so uh, they they go to uh, they go to war with the northern soldiers. Uh, the South, of course, did not have uh, an industrial. Uh, com- com- complex like the North did. So one of the, the things the, the Southern soldiers used to do after they had a victory, uh, they would raid the, the Northern stocks to get all of their, um, their, their canned goods. Um, it was probably the first time that many uh, soldiers tasted tomatoes, fresh or, or canned. And um, and after the war, they wanted to start. Uh, they wanted to keep eating um, canned tomatoes. Um, I think the production of canned tomatoes increased something like sixfold after after the war. And there were hundreds of these small canning plants um, in uh, in the United States. Many of them, uh, like these mom and pop canning shops, um, that were built right on tomato farms that makes sense don't have to go very far to get your materials i suppose um but moving from the mom and pop shop you talk about how tomatoes in addition to suddenly appearing in lots of places one of the places they end up is in front of the u.s supreme court how and what happened then so like many things in america it was all about the dollar um, so what happened was after the war, in an attempt to help the, the southern states kind of rebuild their economies, um, the Tariff Act of 1883 was, uh, was passed um, to put a tariff on imported vegetables, not fruits, just vegetables. Now, in the, in the north, uh, tomatoes by this time were so popular that many of them came from 
um, like border southern states, um, Maryland, uh, northern Virginia, um, to uh, for the for the off season, so you could uh, you could get southern uh, tomatoes as early as uh, as May or or June. We're in the north; it's more of a July August food. Uh, well, obviously, the war put an end to that, so northern. Merchants started to import their tomatoes from the Caribbean. Um, so uh, this tariff goes into effect in 1883, and uh, and a um, a grower, a uh, a re a re- retailer named John Nix, who was the largest uh, Im- importer of uh, foreign fruits and vegetables in in the North. He uh, he pays the tax, but he pays it under pro, uh, under protest because he says that botanically, tomatoes are not a vegetable at all; they are a fruit. And ten years later, this case ends up before the U.S. Supreme Court, and the the trial was has been one of the oddest trials ever, uh, or the hearing in front of the court has been one of the oddest. Ever, uh, I think only one uh, wit- wit- witness was called, and it was basically consisted of the two sides, each reading from their Webster's to uh, to prove that definition of a fruit or tomato was what backed up their their side of it. Um, so. Um, in in the end, uh, the court, in one of the rare, really intelligent rulings that our, our court ha- has made, did uh, did side with the uh, with with Nick saying, "Yes, you're correct in that they are botanically a fruit." But then again, so are squashes and um, cute. Cucumbers, even peas, are actually a uh, a fruit because a fruit is um, is the is defined as the um, the usually edible reproductive body of a plant. But and this is a a big but, he said in common use, they are eaten with the main course, with the soup or the meat course. They are not eaten with ice cream for dessert. And so therefore, we are going to classify them as a vegetable, which everyone does. And so John Nix lost his uh, lost his case. <laughs> Always interesting when you get technicalities um, that combine, they contrast sort of legal or scientific knowledge with common parlance um, and the common parlance wins. So that was a really interesting sort of episode to read about. Um, But it wasn't the only time that law comes up when it comes to tomatoes changing the world, which I was quite interested in. Um, Another kind of pretty big aspect where law and regulations come in is with the San Marzano tomatoes and whether or not they're authentic, which you actually really helpfully lay out the story in the books that we kind of follow along going, okay, well, that would make sense. Oh, no, it turns out that's not the solution. Oh, okay, what about this? Well, that would make sense. Um, So I wonder if you can sort of sum up for us both in terms of the book and also perhaps this might be something that would be practically useful um, for those of us shopping in stores. 
how does one know if one is buying an authentic San Marzano tomato? And why is it so hard to know? Hmm. Well, in the, in the, um, in the EU, it's not that hard to know uh, because they all have uh, the, the DOP seal or in Italy, the PDO seal, um, uh, which is, of course, you know, the or, uh, domain origin of protection and it's highly reg- regulated. Uh, but once you leave the, the, e- the EU, uh, that cannot be in, enforced. Um, I was told that as many as 95% of the l- tomatoes labeled San Marzano sold in the United States are fake. 95%. Um, mm. That what growers will will do is they'll just take a couple from there and then they'll mix them in with the cheap Southern uh, tomatoes, or they may even show up uh, without a label on. They may be 0% uh, San Marzano Mar- and they end up at a, you know, a where- warehouse in Brooklyn or something where labels are uh, put on. So it's, it's hard to tell, but what you can do is you can look for not only the, the DOP seal, but look for a second seal, which is put on by the consortium for the protection of the San Marzano tomato of the Agro Sarnese Nitrino stamp on the bottom of the, uh, of the can um, and an additional stamp should tell you actually, uh, it's a code that tells you where the tomatoes, what farm they actually came from and what date they were, they were canned on. Um, if you see those, those three things, you see the, the DOP seal, you see the, the con, con, consortium seal, and you see the stamp, you probably have uh, real San Mar- Marzano's. Um, the other half of the question is, do we care? (laughs) Are they that much better? Um, it's hard to say. Um, they, they represent less than 1% of all the canned tomatoes sold in Italy today. They're very, very small niche. They're farmed by, um, men who are mainly in their seventies, if not their 80s um, on tiny one to two acre farms um, supported as much by their pensions as um, as they are from the the crops that they that they raise um, I asked one of the growers there I said what what's gonna happen you know when when these guys all all die because uh, they're not that far. <laughs> and he said, oh, we have, we have some younger people coming in who are, you know, taking over the farms. I said, how young? He said, oh, in their 60s. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a curious uh, business. Um, but I, I think it's, it's wonderful that this, uh, this uh, tomato that really was so important to the economy of, of Italy after the first world world war and, um, and has contributed so much to cuisine of Italy, to the culture of Italy, and then almost died out in the 
60s through disease and no one really knew that gene pool had gotten mixed up no one really knew what a what a, a real one was anymore that they're still trying to keep this going and so my my feeling is that i i will pay a little extra to buy to buy a can of them just to just kind of help keep this wonderful uh, uh art really is what it is going mm. Yeah, that definitely struck me um, when you talked about young people and it was like 60. I'm like, hmm, that's not young in most contexts, but okay. Um, And I would definitely point the listeners uh, to the book for this to learn more about kind of the background of the uh, farms in Italy and kind of what they look at and why the tomatoes are considered special and that kind of thing. Um, But instead of going into all that detail here, I do want to make sure that we get to uh, the most famous, perhaps, tomato-related thing, obviously, Heinz ketchup. As you show in the book, ketchup was not created by Heinz. He didn't magically create it out of nothing. There were all sorts of things kind of in that category before, but Heinz is the leader um, even today for a reason. So how and why did Heinz change ketchup? Yeah, uh, Henry Heinz is one of the... the the heroes in this book and uh yeah as you as you pointed out uh ketchup uh is actually uh was developed by the british uh based on uh asian fish sauces um and the early ketchups um were made with um um like uh, nuts or mushrooms or and and anchovies uh, were much thinner than what we think of ketchup today. Um, well, across the ocean, um, we talked about how uh, how much canning was going on and how that had taken off in the middle of the 19th century. Um, that left a lot of slop on the floor. At the end of the day, all of these uh, the t- tomatoes that were too overripe or underripe or rotten, diseased to go into cans were just hosed off the floor or swept into the gutter. And it occurred to someone that, hmm, why don't we boil these down, add a little sugar, salt, and spices, and bottle it as tomato ketchup. Um, And when they started doing that, it became hugely popular. Uh, and Henry Hines, who had first made his fortune in pickles, uh, lost all his money um, in the financial crisis uh, in the um, 1870s. And to get back on his feet, he needed something that he could um, he could sell with very little uh, capital and time and so he started buying up this slop and bottling ketchup and uh his ketchup uh very soon uh had become the best-selling ketchup not just in the the united states but in the entire world um to this day i think heinz still has over 60 percent of the european market ketchup and he opened plants in england germany um, became a very wealthy man. He was one of the five lords of, Pitts, of Pittsburgh, along with Carnegie and Mellon and Westinghouse. Um, but there was a threat looming on the horizon in the uh, form of this 
fire firebrand named Harvey Wiley, who had taken over as the head of the Department of Chemistry in the United States. Uh, and this is the department that would go on to become the Food and Drug Administration. And Harvey Wiley wanted to get pre preservatives out of food and ketchup because it, it consisted of floor slop largely uh had a great deal of uh preservatives um they went through a, a couple and then settled on uh benzoic acid um and without this a bottle of ketchup would spoil in literally like three or four days. There are stories about the corks popping off in uh, merchant stores if they didn't have enough preservative. Um, so Wiley uh, was was going after Heinz and ketchup to get uh, ben, ben, benzoic acid out. Um, and this would have ruined Heinz. I mean, he was, as I said, usually wealthy. Ketchup was his best-selling product. Um, and so Heinz pro, pro, protested and said, it's impossible. It's impossible to make a ketchup that does not have preservatives. You, you can't do it. Um, and the other ketchups, you know, the walnut and the mushroom, the, an, the anchovy ketchups, they had a shelf life of up to a year. Um, and so people would have switched back to those again. Uh, but even while uh, Heinz was uh, saying it couldn't be done, he had his uh, scientists working on it. And what Heinz kept wondering is, why can't the company H.J. Heinz make a ketchup like his mother, Mrs. Heinz, Used, used to make hers. Hers didn't spoil in several days, and so he went. He, he looked at you know what what she had done, um, and one thing was she had used fresh ripe tomatoes from the back the backyard, um, a little more vinegar, and so they started playing around with all these variables and they found that adding more vinegar gave it a longer shelf life but it made it too sour so you had to add sugar to counteract the vinegar that made it a little too sweet so you had to add more sugar and he was getting closer he was getting the ketchup that would last a, a week or two but he was after 30 30 days figure you know people will use up a bottle of ketchup in 30 days and he still hadn't hit on what the secret was to to have ketchup that would last that that long and they realized though that there was a property they had been overlooking the entire time of the tomato itself which is the pectin now, pectin we know today is something that we use, you know, thicken jellies and, and jams. It turns out, though, it's also a natural preservative. Um, but it's kind of fragile. If, you, uh, if the tomatoes are, are overripe or underripe, they don't have enough of it. If you cook them for too, for too long, the pectin kind of breaks, breaks down. But Heinz found that by bringing in boat boatloads and his his plant was built right on river um boatloads and train loads of freshly picked tomatoes uh that added to all the other things 
uh, could give him a bottle of ketchup that would last for 30 days, uh, which happens to be the shelf life today of a bottle of ketchup if you don't put it in the fridge. Um, by the time he was done, though, ketchup had really changed. It was no longer this kind of a thin, lightly seasoned sauce. It now was... Um, it was sweeter, it was spicier, it had more of a vinegar tang, and I think most notably, all that pectin, of course, made it much thicker. Um, in fact, it's so thick that it's hard to get out of the bottle. And the reason on Heinz ketchup for the thin ba- uh, thin neck of the bottle was to keep air out. Um And it it turns out that he actually had uh, created what we call a Newtonian fluid, meaning that unlike most fluids, if you shake it, you actually change the the thickness of it. The viscosity lowers. So if you think about, you know, if you shake up... uh, shake up a, a pint of cream, it's it's still going to be as thick as uh, or as thin as prior to shaking. But if you do shake a bottle of ketchup, um, it will get thinner uh, for a very brief period of time. In fact, uh, Heinz says what you should do is wrap the neck of the bottle and they put the 57, you know, Heinz 57 varieties is their trademark. They put that right on the bottle where you're supposed to uh, give it a good hard wrap to uh, momentarily just make it thin thin enough to get out of the bottle. (laughs) Fascinating. Um, Thank you for explaining kind of all the pieces that lead to what we know today and solving the mystery of how to actually get ketchup out of the bottle, which I think probably many of us, certainly I can say for myself, um, have struggled with and would have been useful to know that tip perhaps earlier. So I'm glad that we've shared it um, with the audience now. Um, Given that obviously ketchup is very much something that is both historical and deeply modern and everyday, um, I'm going to use that as an excuse to move us sort of more chronologically to the present. Um, and ask you about something else that you show in the book is something that both consumers deal with, um, but also really kind of is throughout the tomato industry from the very beginning of growing them, which is this issue that it seems like tomatoes now often look quite nice, round and red and kind of juicy looking and great, which particularly if you look at pictures of Renaissance tomatoes, they're kind of creepy looking. Um, but Tomatoes today, despite looking nice, maybe don't have a lot of flavor, don't taste great. So how is it that we've ended up with these two changes, one of which is an improvement, but one of which is perhaps not? Well, it really goes back to uh, like the 1880s, 1890s, when uh, breeders started to breed for, for looks, not so much for flavor. And so people started to value a tomato that was perfectly smooth and, um, and, flaw- and flawless. Um, the tomatoes that arrived in, in Europe, by, by, by the way, were uh, ridged. They had deep, uh, deep lobes in them. Um, look, you know, you could still buy, buy those today. They look very different from what we think of today's 
tomato. Um, and then the, the hybrid age came in, the first hybrid tomato, uh, 1949. Uh, Burpee came out with the big, the big Boy, still sells very well today. And, um, and the reason that uh, that did so well was that prior to that, t- tomatoes were really wild plants. Um, and you very often had to go up on a, on a ladder, actually, to, to harvest them. And Burpee used to get uh, mail saying, you know, dear Mr. Burpee, my, my, my husband can't climb a ladder any, anymore. Can you, can you develop a tomato that you know, he doesn't have to go up in the air uh, to pick? And so once we started to be able to, um, to, to hybridize tomatoes, now we could develop them for things like uh, uh, tolerance to drought and insects and disease and looks, or perhaps to ripen earlier. Um, and something else that's kind of sneaky snuck in. Someone discovered in the 1950s a gene that if you go to a, to a supermarket today and you buy tomato, you'll notice that it's an evenly red color from the, from the stem end down to the, to the flower end. Um, if you grow a hybrid tomato, I mean, I'm sorry, if you grow an heirloom tomato, that is not a hybrid that has been around since prior to the 1950s, you'll probably notice that it ripens from the top down. So the top of the tomato might still be green. And and a lot of people hate this because if you're slicing tomato, you kind of have to throw throw away you know, the, the, the top of it. Well, someone had found that there is a gene, this, and they called it an even ripening gene that made the tomato ripen all at once. And that got bred into almost every single hybrid tomato that was, uh, that, that came out starting in 1950s. And you could say, well, what, what's the harm? This seems like a good, a good thing, but it's just a few years ago that a scientist found that that gene has a side effect which is that it does reduce some of the flavor, um, tomato. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one kind of set of reasons there. And the, the other thing is that, you know, now that we can make hybrid tomatoes, you can, you can re, re, respond to the traits that the growers want. And the growers want yield. They want durability. All the things that they want have a negative correlation to flavor, to sweet, the sweetness. Um, just, uh, you know, if you want twice as many tomatoes on your plant, so you can sell twice as many and make as make twice as much. Um, well, you're going to have the same number of leaves on the plant, and so those leaves have to do the photo the photosynthesis work uh, for twice as many, and so you're not going to have as much flavor uh, in them. Uh, so. There's a lot of things that are favorable for the commercial tomato 
that are not so good for the con- consumer. Mm. That was really interesting um, to read about, obviously, in the book and to hear now kind of the number of different ways that we sort of ended up in this place. Um, but I'd love to ask you about uh, something you've actually just mentioned about heirloom tomatoes, uh, which you've just kind of helpfully described for us what the difference is. Um, but why and how did t- heirloom tomatoes suddenly become so popular? Um, because of what we were talking about about 60 seconds ago, I think you know people started to realize, they said, hmm, is it my imagination or tomatoes not as good as they used to be? Um, and, and they, there was, you know, I think a general recognition that they, you know, they weren't as, as, as good. And that happened at about the same time that people were also worried about the loss of seeds of heirloom seeds that, um, that the seed, uh, catalogs weren't selling anymore, um, there was a, a couple called the Wheelies in the in the mid the Midwest United States, and they realized that they had a couple of uh, of plants on their hands that um, that one of their grandmothers had brought over from Germany, you know, eighty years ago, um, and they said, you know, if we don't. If someone else doesn't grow grow these. Who's who's going to keep? these these plants alive these varieties alive when we're gone and so they started um in 1975 they started what they call the seed savers exchange um where people would trade seeds they would they would run ads saying you know i have this variety of a speckled bean would anyone like like some you know send me a a quarter and i'll i'll send you some seeds and it started to catch on. Um, they were also concerned that as this, as this hybrid age dawned, that the seed catalogs were more and more dropping some of the older tomatoes, and they were only selling the hybrid seeds. And hybrids do not grow true from, from seed. Um, and so that means that you have to go back to the seed company every year to buy new seeds. You can't simply save seeds from uh, a few fruits, dry them out, and plant them the next year. So, you know, all of this kind of happened at the at the same time. And one of the, I think, the most um, critical uh, vegetables or fruits that, that they came out of this were some of these heirloom tomatoes. Um, um, and, and at the same time, you have this huge growth in farmers markets, um, in the United States. And so farmers now were starting to grow some of these and they found they could sell these heirloom tomatoes, which were far superior tomatoes for like, you know, six, $7 a pound. Uh, you've got the baby boomers now who are buying, you know, imported cheese and $30 balsamic vinegar from Italy. And, um, and they had the, the money now to spend a little more on tomatoes. Then it just became a cultural thing after that. Martha Stewart got on the band, the bandwagon, the New York times, uh, started writing about them. 
And the next thing you knew, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't dare hold a dinner party and serve a hybrid tomato to anyone. Well, that, um, again, many different ways to kind of get to the same place. And I think it's really interesting, the sort of combination of the kind of grassroots side, but then also celebrities getting involved. Um, so thank you for kind of explaining that, that again, we might come across, but don't always know sort of what the history is and what's happened behind these terms or these types of tomatoes. Um, so kind of now that we've done the history, we've moved into talking more about the future, uh, the present, I'd love to talk a little bit about the future. Um, because in the book, you uh, talk about you visited some of what might be kind of the next big thing for tomatoes, or certainly seem in a lot of ways somewhat futuristic, which are massive, massive greenhouses that grow tomatoes, um, which is obviously quite different from southern Italy or southern Florida. To what extent do you think are these massive greenhouse tomatoes the future? You know, I just saw uh, a piece in the news newspaper uh, talking about um, that the producers of jarred tomato sauce are worried about a shortage this winter because the droughts in the tomato growing regions of the Western United, United States have been so great. The tomato crop is greatly uh, re reduced this year, um, which is... That type of thing is is kind of leading me to think it's it is going to be a very important part of the future. Um, I was I was shocked to learn about this, and it was almost like accident. Uh, I started noticing in the in the Northeast um, that in uh, like in March I would see uh, tomatoes in the in the store, and we would normally get them from Florida or. Mexico, and they had stickers saying "product of, of Canada" on them. <laughs> I'm like, what is, a, what is a Canadian tomato doing in my store in in March? So I uh, I went up there to investigate, and um, this is something that you know had been going on, has been going on in uh, in Europe, Holland for some for some time. Uh, it just started catching on here, um, less than. 10 years ago, probably. Um, and um, there's a, a, a place up there in on, Ontario, Leamington, where a lot of Italian immigrants had settled. Uh, used to be a ketchup plant there. It was a big tomato area. And one of the families started um, started playing around with uh, green greenhouses. Now, you have to kind of reset your notion of a, of a greenhouse when we're, we're talking about these. Um, these are greenhouses of 100, 150 acres. I mean, they are they're the size of a small village. Um, the tomatoes are aqua, aquaponically grown in, uh, in water, uh, in a, a basalt rock medium they will grow because tomatoes are vines they will grow up to the ceiling and along the top of the ceiling they will grow up to 75 feet long um How? and uh they bring in bees there are bee beehives throughout the green the greenhouse to pollinate the tomatoes um and um they can grow you know between 40 and 70 times the amount of 
vegetables in the same area as a field, we're using one tenth the water, almost no fertilizer, almost no um, pest pesticides. Um, and a lot of people would say they even taste a little better because these tomatoes don't have to be bred to withstand the harsh, you know, droughts or floods or those types of things that they can be bred purely for flavor because the environment is totally con 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 controlled. But I did find myself, you know, wondering as I was sampling tomatoes um, in a 72 degree greenhouse as snow was falling on the roof. Uh, what's the carbon footprint of a greenhouse tomato? Um, and I think we've just only started to recognize in, in recent years um, the role agriculture in, um, in con contributing to greenhouse gases. Um, now, when we talk about agriculture, it's more um, the production of animal pro, pro, pro protein. But still, you know, in an age when we're, you know, this is getting pretty serious now. <laughs> it's getting pretty warm. We've seen what this past summer has, uh, has, has brought with the wildfire, wildfires and the drought. And, um, you know, does it make sense to take something that grows perfectly well outdoors and has for hundreds of, of years and to bring it in indoors for reasons that mm, aren't entirely clear? Um, and, you know, as, again, even though they're not the, the major source of, ag of ag agricultural greenhouse gases, um, a a greenhouse tomato does emit about six times the carbon as a field tomato. And that, that's true, even if you have to ship it hundreds of miles, um, which is uh, often the case uh, both here in the States and in uh, Europe, where many, many of the uh, tomatoes eaten in Europe come from the southernmost tip of, uh, of Spain. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know you know, where, where we're going with this, because there are people who, who say, well, we have no, no choice that the planet is going to have 50 billion people by 2050. And because you can grow so much more food in a greenhouse than you can in a field, and you don't have to worry about, you know, E. coli from the pig farm upstream or floods or, or drought, um, and that this is that we don't have a choice. That that this is the only way we're going to feed the planet. Um, so I guess the question is, can you make it sustainable? And there are some some efforts in that direction. Um, there are two greenhouses that just opened in England that are adjacent to water or waste treat treatment plants because they use the um the heat that's generated uh by those plants to heat the green the greenhouses um and i if you could run a greenhouse with a purely re renewable energy source you know whether that is you know taking waste heat from some 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 place or wind or solar nuclear then i guess it doesn't matter um but we are already seeing the 
acceleration of this in the last couple of years has just been enormous. Uh, it's no longer just tomatoes, uh, lettuce, those those little heads of um, like butter crunch lettuce that are in the plastic clam clamshells are all grown in indoors. Um, factories in cities that had closed down years ago are many of them now have reopened as vertical green greenhouses, uh, where instead of going out, you know, you go up. Um, and there are all these trays just stacked of lettuce. Um, many of the straw, the strawberries that we eat now are being grown in indoors. Um, you know, there is a lot of promise, not the least of which is that, you know, in order to grow food, you had to have good soil, you had to have good climate. Well, now if you, you know, going to have a hundred acre hydroponic greenhouse, you can put it anywhere. And Egypt is, they, they've just opened up several of them in the desert where you wouldn't think anything would, would grow in the, in the sand there. Um, so I, I think, I think the next few years will kind of, uh, tell us where it goes, but you know, again, un, unless is something that is su- sustainable, I think it's going to have a, a hard time. Hmm. That makes sense. And I think it's, a really useful um, sort of example in the wider picture of climate um, to think about and kind of go, okay, well, in these ways, it's an improvement, but hang on, what about this? And how do all of those pieces come together? Um, So thank you for sort of taking us through that and helping us understand um, kind of what's happening now and what might be happening in the future. Um, And as my last question, I'm wondering if you might be able to do that on a micro level, um, is there anything that you are currently or looking to work on next or are you taking a break and still haven't picked, uh, you know, haven't picked your next project or anything, maybe a sentence you can share with us about um, what you're doing now that this book is available for people to read? Uh I am, as they say, between projects at the moment. <laughs> I, I I don't know where I'm I, I'm going to go next. I you know I started out my first three three books were um, all uh, uh, mem- memoir type books. Um, with history in them, and I think with each one, I wrote a little more of the historical uh, part of it. Um, and with this book, I just decided to kind of, you know, go all out and um, and just say, OK, I'm going to, you know, enough about me. I think people are tired of reading about me trying to bake the perfect loaf of bread or learning French or something. And let me just, you know, uh, kind of put on my uh, historical hat, even though I am not a trained uh, historian. So I, I think I'm probably going to continue in that direction, though, and uh, and stop writing about me and uh, stop writing about me and find a find a topic that, uh, that I just love that I think has been kind of, you know, under underwritten about and, and see what I can do with it. Amazing. Um, well, whatever you end up choosing, I'm sure it will be absolutely fascinating um, and written in a really compelling way. I think that was definitely one of the plus points um, of this book. Um, And as a reminder to our listeners, the book that we have been discussing is titled 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World, out in 2022 this year from Grand Central Publishing. Um, William Alexander, thank you so much for sharing your time and thoughts and expertise with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. It's been fun.